Don't you just love it, saints? When we approach God's Word with our ears bowed down to the ground, when we approach God's Word in His majority text Holy Bible with our ears reverently bowed down, when we approach God's Word with our ears fully surrendered, the marvels of Holy Ghost revelation begin. Proverbs 22, verse 17, Bow down thine ear, and hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. It's always been a word and ear issue. We are literally made out of words. God is the living word, John 1, 1, the creation words of intent, and he requires ears bowed down. Don't you just love it, saints? In our hands rests the glorious book of secrets. They can only be discerned by the born again. The discerner of these secrets will always have an ear bowed down. Imagine that in this beautiful living book you will find the history of how it all began and why the world and mankind are in their present states. Instructions on how to participate in the greatest miracle man can know, the miracle greater than the creation of the universe, the miracle Jesus Christ calls born again. Instructions on how to participate in the second greatest miracle man can know, which is to be baptized in the Holy Ghost, just like they were on the day of Pentecost when they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here the believer communicates with God at the highest level. Uncertainty completely vanquished. How to maintain a 24-7 presence in the secret place of the Most High, where only good things reside, where good things are maximized to the maximum. Here in Life's Owner's Manual, you'll discover how to interface with the spiritual world, how to love one another, even our enemies, answers to all your questions, solutions to all your problems, and how to live forever. Wow, and that's just a short list. Dear visitor, have you yet to be born again, as Jesus directs in John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Will today be the day you bow down your ear? In just a few moments, I will invite you to follow me in a simple prompt. And if you follow from your heart, you will participate in the greatest miracle man can know. Today, all your sin and its shame will be washed away by Christ's cleansing blood. Today, all of the devil's bondages in your life will be broken, even shattered. Today, you will be born again, born a second time, this time of the Spirit of God. Today, you will become a son or daughter of God. Today, everything becomes new for you. None of the things I have written in this prelude are an exaggeration. None. Here is the simple prop I promised. Click on the Further with Jesus for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. God said, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For it pleased the Father, that in him should all fullness dwell. 
Man said, I'm busy with my own things, so I have no time for God and serving Jesus. I'm serving my own pleasures. To tell you the truth, the plan is for me to live like hell, and when I'm on my deathbed, after I've had my fun, then I'll give my dirty, worthless heart to Jesus. Sounds like a good idea, don't you think? Now the record. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature 1095, that will once again contend for the faith and certify the inerrancy of the pure and beautiful word of the living God. All of these soul-saving features are archived here in text and streaming audio for your edification and as a platform from which to convince the gainsayer. Every Thursday eve, God willing, they grow by one. Your visit is why we're here. Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied unto you and your house in Christ Jesus. They always end up here, but it seldom dawns on them that they have arrived because they don't know where here is. The here is the living word of God, which is the source of all things visible and invisible, and that's lock, stock, and barrel. They always end up here. It is not optional. Many at the highest levels of academia, especially in the sciences, demonstrate a woeful lack of schooling, as in Sunday schooling. Their deep lack of biblical knowledge is glaring. When they ballyhoo their latest and greatest, they aren't even aware that the Bible declared their truth thousands of years in advance of their eureka moment. And of course, no credit is given. They always end up here, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, but the sign reads, no admission. Entrance to here can only be obtained with humbled ears and knees bowed down. Only then does revelation begin. This God said, man said feature will demonstrate this reality. When we come upon a strange grouping of words in the scriptures, it is time to stop and meditate Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1 is one of those passages. Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. The following excerpts are from the God Said, Man Said feature seven pillars and strange and peculiar groupings of words. Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. These words were penned approximately 3,000 years ago. A strange and peculiar grouping of words. Today's neuroscience is just beginning to understand its meaning. Renowned neuroscientist Dr. Caroline Leaf in her new book, The Gift in You, writes concerning the mystery of the seven pillars. A few excerpts from Dr. Leaf's book follow. The implications are that wisdom and good judgment are built and take time to develop. Throughout the Word of God, we are instructed to get wisdom. It's not a choice. It's an instruction to build a house of wisdom in our minds. Scientifically, the brain is also built on seven pillars, which, when used properly, produce clear intelligence and wise thinking. These seven main areas of the brain were revealed through imaging techniques that observe activity in people's brains as they perform different tasks. Dr. Leaf goes on to define the seven pillars. So the neurons in the front of the brain, the frontal cortex, that is the location of the intrapersonal pillar, deal with decision-making, planning, deep analyzing, shifting between thoughts, realizing goals, and developing strategies. When we are introspective, we are using this type of thought. 
Just behind the intrapersonal pillar is the interpersonal pillar, which is involved in social interaction, communications, turn-taking, and turning into the uh, tuning into excuse me the needs of others. The intrapersonal pillar is followed by the linguistic pillar, which deals with spoken and written language. After the linguistic pillar is the logical mathematical pillar, which deals with reasoning, logic, scientific thinking, numbers, and problem solving. Next is the kinesthetic pillar that provides sensory and body awareness. Then comes the musical pillar, which of course is music-based, but also includes the ability to read between the lines and distinguish gut instincts. Finally, there is the visual-spatial pillar at the back of the brain, which is where we imagine and from and form mental maps. Your unique thinking pattern requires that you think by moving through the seven different pillars of the brain's thought in a particular, particular order with a signature amount of bandwidth given to that function. When we start exploring the seven pillars of thought, an integral principle is that all seven of these pillars work together very, very intimately. They don't work separately, and they all interconnect, end of quotes. Neuroscience confirms the beautiful book. Yes, seven pillars. In the strange and peculiar grouping of words department, consider Job 38, verse 30. The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Also, Psalms 24, 1 and 2. Uh, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it Upon the floods. The following sentences are from the God Said, Man Said feature, Geologists Floored by Water Rock. Writing in the journal Nature, scientists on Wednesday said they had found an elusive mineral pointing to the existence of a vast reservoir deep in Earth's mantle, 250 to 375 miles beneath our feet. It may hold as much water as all the planet's oceans combined, they believe. The evidence comes from a water-loving mineral called ringwoodite that came from the so-called transition zone sandwiched between the upper and lower layers of the Earth's mantle, they said. This sample really provides extremely strong confirmation that there are local wet spots deep in the Earth in this area, said Graham Pearson of Canada's University of Alberta, who led the research. Hans Kepler, a geologist at the University of Bayreuth in Germany, said the water was likely to be locked up in specific rocks in molecular form called hydroxyl. In some ways, it is an ocean in Earth's interior as visualized by Jules Verne, although not in the form of liquid water, Kepler said in a commentary also published by Nature. Kepler speaks of water that is locked up in specific rocks, even as Job, arguably the oldest book of the Bible, records in chapter 38, verse 30, end of quotes. No credit was given to the various passages in the Bible that define their latest discovery concerning the world that is founded upon the seas or the waters of the great deep hidden as with a stone. A lack of schooling, as in Sunday schooling, is apparent. Another glaring example of the absence of Sunday schooling is seen in archaeology's treatment of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, called the cities of the plain, which God destroyed with brimstone and fire, the makeup of meteors uh, that he rained down out of heaven. 
The following paragraphs are from the God Said, Man Said feature Sodom and Dots. The latest discovery made by archaeologist Stephen Collins warranted front-page representation on the March-April 2013 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review and inside a 10-plus page feature. Collins presents his case for Tal el-Hammam as the actual site of Sodom. Excerpts from his feature follow. A number of scholars in the past have placed Sodom at various places at or near the southern end of the Dead Sea. William F. Albright proposed that Sodom and Gomorrah might be underwater south of the Dead Sea's Lisson Peninsula. Brian G. Woods suggests that Bob Adra and Numeria might be Sodom and Gomorrah, while R. Thomas Schaub and Walter E. Rast, the excavators of those sites, believe that they may be the visible ruins from which the uh, etiological legend arose. Still others, like Burton, McDonald, uh, suggest that they were two separate etiological traditions, one favoring the north end of the Dead Sea and one favoring the southern location that arose in Israel and Judah, respectively. While the dispute will no doubt continue, I believe that Tal el-Hammam is by far the best candidate for biblical Sodom. The main reason for rejecting the southern sites is, of course, the Bible. Nothing in the Bible leads to these southern sites, and everything leads to the area north of the Dead Sea, opposite Bethel and Ai. There is a remarkable correspondence here between text and ground. On the biblical point, Genesis 19.1 says that the angels first came to Lot while he was sitting in the gate of Sodom. We have been excavating the major gate complex that led into the city of Tal el-Hammam. Nothing remotely similar has been found in the south. It is interesting that not a single advocate of the southern sites has ever provided a detailed analysis of Genesis 13.1 through 12 in support of that position. It is true that there is some evidence of a fiery destruction in the southern area, but this is also true of Tal el-Hammam and the area north of the Dead Sea. Bitumen chunks have been mined all across the Dead Sea, Dead Sea, excuse me, including at Tal el-Hammam, end of quote. Under the heading Wrathful Destruction, Collins writes, Across Tal el-Hammam, archaeologists found widespread evidence of an intense, fiery conflagration that left the Middle Bronze Age city in charred ruins. Well below the later Iron Age levels of this excavation trench are the scorched walls and floors of a Middle Bronze Age structure that was buried beneath nearly three feet of dark gray ash. Several broken storage jars and a circular clay-lined storage bin were found on the floor of the building. Amid the destruction's debris was this four-and-a-half-inch-long pottery shred from a Middle Bronze Age storage jar. The glassy appearance of the sherds surface indicates that it was briefly exposed to temperatures well in excess of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the approximate heat of volcanic magma. Similar melted shards uh, were found uh, across the site, suggesting the city and its environs were catastrophically destroyed in a sudden extreme conflagration. The memory of the destruction of Ha Kikar, with its large population and extensive agricultural lands, was preserved in the book of Genesis and ultimately incorporated into a traditional tale, or better said, traditional account, that drawing on the layer of ash that covered the destruction of one of its major cities, 
Remember the place consumed by a fiery catastrophe from out of the heavens. The Bible gives the city's name Sodom, end of quote. Keep in mind that archaeologist Stephen Collins was reporting on excavations at Tal el-Hammam, and the article was published in the spring of 2013, again from Sodom and Dots. The following paragraphs are from the December 22, 2018, and January 5, 2019 issue of Science News. The headline reads, Meteor may have wiped out ancient Dead Sea cities. A superheated blast from the skies obliterated cities and farming settlements north of the Dead Sea about 3,700 years ago, preliminary findings suggest. Radiocarbon dating and minerals that instantly crystallized at high temperatures indicate that an airburst caused by an exploding meteor instantly destroyed civilization on a 25-kilometer-wide, which is 15-and-a-half miles, plain called Middle Gore, said archaeologist Philip Sylvia. The event may have pushed a brine of dead sea salts over farmland. People did not populate the area for 600 to 700 years, Sylvia of Trinity Southwest University in Albuquerque reported November 17 at a meeting of the American Schools of Oriental Research. Excavations at five cities in Jordan indicate that all were occupied for at least 2,500 years until a sudden collapse toward the end of the Bronze Age. Up to about 65,000 people lived in the area when the cosmic calamity hit, Sylvia said. The clearest evidence of destruction caused by a meteor explosion comes from the city of Tal el-Hammam. Mud brick walls of nearly all structures suddenly disappeared about 3,700 years ago, leaving only stone foundations. What's more, the outer layers of many pottery pieces from the time show signs of having melted into glass. Zircon crystals in those glassy coats formed within one second at very high temperatures, Sylvia said. High-force winds created a spherical mineral grains that rained down on Tal el-Hammam and have been found on pottery there, he said, end of quote. Archaeologists date this event to approximately 3,700 years ago. Biblical dating puts the events of Sodom and Gomorrah at just over 3,900 years ago. Finally, allow me to enumerate the names of great biblical people that not only believe God's record of Sodom and Gomorrah, but also wrote and spoke about the matter. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, Jude, and the apostles Peter, John, and Paul, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Were the great prophets and apostles of the Bible duped by faith? Did Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, have it wrong? Of course the answer is no. The historians in the time of and preceding Christ, as well as the discoveries of today, concur over and over again with the Genesis record, but somehow today's experts cannot connect the dots. End of quote. They always end up here, but they are oblivious to it. Somebody skip Sunday school. Colossians chapter 1, 16 through 19. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, 
for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. All fullness dwells in Christ Jesus because this pleases the Father. All means all. And this truth couldn't be any more literal. The born again are ridiculed for offering Jesus as the solution to every dilemma. And you can be sure, saints, our claim is true. By necessity, everything evolves around Jesus Christ. He is known in the Bible as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. He is the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet and all the letters in between and every word they form, every word ever spoken, revolves around Jesus Christ. All words are either pro-Christ or anti-Christ. If the words spoken are true and clean, they are pro if they are false and dirty, they are antichrist. All words revolve around Jesus Christ because this pleases the Father. Consider these excerpts from the God Said, Man Said feature, 21 Signs of Doomsday, Update 44, Part 2, Adam to Armageddon, The Singularity. From before time and onward, even into eternity, Jesus Christ is the singularity by which all things consist because Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 reads, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. After Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked and sewed together fig leaves to make aprons, but that covering was insufficient. To cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, which represents the shameful results of sin, God made them clothes out of animal skins that would cover their nakedness. Note that a blood sacrifice was required to cover their sin. This blood sacrifice was not only the first offering for sin, but also a shadow of the sacrifice Jesus Christ would make on Calvary's tree, which was to come. Jesus Christ is a singularity. In him all fullness dwells. Our daily conversations are laced with Jesus Christ and God. Some examples include atonement by the blood of Jesus Christ creates at one with God. Universe is universe, or one word, God's word. Holiday comes from the words holy day. Goodbye comes from a, contract, a contraction excuse me, of God be with you. The pain on the cross of crucifixion was so severe, a new word was coined. That word is excruciating, which means out of the cross. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the word bless has an etymological meaning of to mark or affect in some way with blood or sacrifice to consecrate, the original meaning to make sacred or holy with blood, end of quote. When one says, God bless you, he or she is calling on the blood covering of Jesus Christ to be your portion. Jesus Christ is the language of God. Jesus Christ is the singularity. Everything revolves around him. Biology calls it laminin. It is an inert substance that acts like scaffolding, holding together all things in life, including our organs. The following is a picture of what it looks like. Colossians 1, verse 17, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Jesus Christ is the singularity. In him all fullness dwells. By him all things consist. Noah Webster defines consist to stand together to be in a fixed or permanent state as a body composed of parts in a union or connection, hence to be supported and maintained. 
Surely God knows the end from the beginning. Jesus Christ is the center of our molecular structure. The following bio is of the author of the book, Believing is Seeing. Michael Gillen, Ph.D., is a graduate of UCLA and Cornell University with degrees in physics, math, and astronomy. The former science editor for ABC News, he taught physics at Harvard for eight years and is the host of the History Channel series, Where Did It Come From?, and producer of the award-winning family movie, Little Red Wagon. He hosts the weekly podcast, Science Plus God with Dr. G, sponsored by K-Love and Air One Radio Networks, is the president of Spectacular Science Productions and speaks to audiences worldwide. Excerpts from his book follow. It's one of Christianity's many puzzling translogical truths, and I saw that it has an intriguing, eye-opening counterpart in a branch of nuclear physics called quantum chromodynamics. We scientists believe the universe is pushed and pulled by four different forces. The strongest one, aptly named the strong force, holds together atomic nuclei the way corn syrup holds together popcorn balls. The strong force is at the very core of our physical being. It's what holds us together. Without it, poof, we disintegrate and blow away like dust in the wind. And that's not all. The strong force is a profound mystery. It originates deep within atomic nuclei, out of sight, in what we call quarks, the invisible and enigmatic components of protons and neutrons. No one's ever seen a quark, and if QCD is correct, no one ever will. Using the most powerful particle accelerators in the world, we bombarded the heck out of atomic nuclei in hopes of busting loose a quark, but with no luck. Now, you might think that if we ever did succeed in liberating a cork, it would be truly free, just as atheists think that liberating themselves from any notion of God makes them truly free thinkers. But just the opposite is true. According to QCD, quarks stay within atomic nuclei because that's where they're the most free. Let me put it another way. A quark is perfectly free only when there is zero distance between it and the source of the strong force— we call this extraordinary phenomenon asymptotic freedom. The strong force, in other words, eases the grip with decreasing distance, which is the exact opposite of how the other forces operate. Gravity and electromagnetism strengthen their grips with decreasing distance. So a quark is freest when it sticks close to the nucleus and least free when they're its farthest from the nucleus. In other words, the presence of the strong force is liberating, not enslaving. According to Christianity, the identical thing is true about God. His presence is liberating, not enslaving. How exactly, how exactly is it liberating? Christians believe that translogical realities, such as God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, angels, demons, Satan, heaven, and hell truly exist. Atheists do not. Atheists liken all of the above to obvious fictions, such as the Tooth Fairy, Santa Claus, unicorns, and hobbits. And they do so with a sense of enormous pride, claiming to only believe in things they can see, prove, imagine, and support with solid evidence. But as we've established throughout this book, we cannot see 95% of the observable universe, nor 100% of the unobservable universe beyond that. Truth is bigger than proof, Logic can only prove trivial truths. 
Evidence can always be interpreted in more than one way, and it can never prove a complex hypothesis or religion, including atheism, end of quote. According to Dr. Gillen, it is the strong force that holds us together, or we would simply go poof, disintegrate, and blow away. Or on a much uh, physically larger scale, we see the same principle play out in the laminin, which is the scaffolding that holds all life together, which we spoke of earlier. The laminin is, in fact, a biological cross. All forces were made by Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, including the strong force that holds all life together. Colossians 1.17, and by him all things consist. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ upholds all things by the invisible word of his power. Lest some would think words have no real power, they should know that because of concepts such as quantum consciousness, scientists now theorize as soon it will be discovered that wisdom and understanding, words, actually produce light or photons, which is the energy from the sun. It is now known that energy is the source of matter, all physical things. Don't you just love it, saints? They always end up here. Let's see how God put it all together. Proverbs 3.19, The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. Now watch wisdom and understanding before light. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Psalms 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Psalms 119, 130, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Note, God is the word, John 1, 1, and God is light, 1 John 1, 5, and they fully interact. God is the God of love. And none of his commandments or his precepts are for his own benefit, unless you think that what he finds most beneficial is your good success. And by the way, it is. All of his instructions are given that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Foundational to this idea is the nature of his commandments and the law of the blessing or the curse. Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Every commandment of God has inherited within it a blessing or a curse. Because every commandment of God is perfect and inerrant, and because it is given solely for our good, obeying the commandment yields the delicious fruit of doing the right thing or the blessing. Because every commandment of God is perfect and inerrant, and because it is given solely for our good, disobeying the commandment yields the rotten fruit of doing the wrong thing or the curse. The closer we are to God's instructions of love, the more blessed and free we become. Here, the carnal chains are broken. We are compared to the sheep of his pasture, and we are most safe when we rest under the shepherd's loving hand. Psalms 14, verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. 
Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Ephesians 4, 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. The closer we get to God, the more blessed and free we become. The very foundations of life must, by necessity and design, mimic Christ. The quirk Dr. Gillen spoke of is the most fulfilled and free when it is closest to its atomic nucleus, the doctor writes. According to the Christian worldview, following the wordless but perceptible promptings of the Holy Spirit, trusting Jesus' promises keeps you close to the nucleus of God's presence. There, within the sound of your Creator's still small voice, you are at peace with Him. In the nucleus, you are not God's slave, as atheism claims. Rather, you exist in a state of, a sympto- of symptotic freedom, a state in which your IQ or SQ, spiritual intelligence, collaborate synergistically, divinely. This, in turn, empowers you to behold your life in all its logical and translogical magnificence and mystery. Welcoming and entering that state of extreme closeness with God is the only way you will ever be able to escape from yourself, from your rebelliousness, your bad habits, your self-deifying conceits. As Jesus said, it's the only way you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. End of quote. Don't you just love it, saints? It's so much bigger and more bizarre. Jesus Christ is the center of everything. By design, everything revolves around him because this pleases the Father. They always end up here. God said, Proverbs 9, verse 1, Wisdom hath builded her house, she hath hewn out her seven pillars. God said, Hebrews chapter 1, 2, and 3, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. God said, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all, that word is all, fullness dwell. Man said, I'm busy with my own things, so I have no time for God in serving Jesus. I'm serving my own pleasures. To tell the truth, the plan is for me to live like hell, and when I'm on my deathbed, after I've had my fun, then I'll give my dirty, worthless heart to Jesus. Sounds like a good idea, don't you think? Now you have the record.